How is everybody doing? It is Friday, June 3rd. You are listening to the College Football Daily. I'm your host, Lance Glenn. SEC spring meetings have been taking place over the last few days. And of course, we at 24-7 Sports have boots on the ground in Destin. Those boots belong to college football reporter Brandon Marcello, and he joins us now. Brandon, how are we doing? Have you been able to uh, to hit the beach at all? You've been able to enjoy the sun at all during your time in Florida? Uh, hopefully Friday afternoon before I leave. When the meetings conclude, I plan on going out there. With or without the beach, there's obviously been uh, plenty discussed over the last few days when it comes to these SEC spring meetings, and it certainly kept you busy. And I want to start just big picture first and foremost. So with the meetings coming to a close today, in fact, Friday, what's been your biggest just general takeaways so far from SEC spring meetings? You know, NIL is dominating the conversation. And then our attention is really as reporters and even the coaches has really been gravitating toward that Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban fight. But actually, the the discussions that will probably have any consequences probably revolves around scheduling, because scheduling is going to kind of frame everything that's going to happen with not just the SEC, college football, and the college football playoff moving forward. But Never a shortage of uh, of topics and drama around the SEC, even in these mundane meeting rooms. So Jimbo Saban, NIL, scheduling, we're going to hit on all those. And I want to start with Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. And everyone that follows college football, whether their favorite team is in the SEC or not, wanted to see what would happen and what the dynamic was like between those two. Obviously, we all know the back and forth a little while ago. And now these two colleagues are in the same place. So I'll just ask you bluntly, what's going on with Saban and Jimbo? What's the latest in this uh, SEC soap opera? They both said they moved on. Jimbo, though, won't uh, answer any direct questions about, hey, has the NCAA reached out to you about you saying Saban, you need to look into his program? Has the NCAA reached out to Texas A&M to look into you know, Saban saying what he said about them saying, quote, he bought players? Of course, Saban has backtracked his comments saying he shouldn't have singled out Texas A&M or any institution. And Jimbo just says they've moved on, that they did talk at SEC spring meetings. How long that conversation was, was it just a handshake and, hey, how are you? They won't uh, divulge. But listen, um, to act like that, that animosity just completely goes poof overnight, I I don't see that. Even if Jimbo Fisher compares it to getting in a fight with a brother, uh, you still love that brother. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of love between the two. There is some respect there because Nick Saban is the GOAT and Jimbo Fisher worked for him for four to five seasons at LSU. But um, listen, NIL, which is what this whole discussion has been about, uh, that, that fired this up, it's made emotions run high. People's nerves are frayed because they don't know what's going on with it. And uh, you've seen that emotion pour over from Nick Saban and now, of course, Jimbo Fisher. And I, I think like anybody, when you... Uh, show your butt, so to speak, out there. You want to quickly pull your pants back up. And that's what these two have done. They're trying to pull their pants back up and act like nothing happened. And would it be safe to assume that when these two teams meet in October, not everything is going to be a hunky-dory, regardless of what the score is, uh, when they uh, shake hands after the game? Is it safe to assume that, uh, obviously, I'm not saying anything is going to go down, but there might be a little awkwardness in the air, so to speak? Yeah, sure. I also think that they'll play it up for the cameras and shake hands and act like they're having a great conversation. What's interesting, I immediately start thinking about what Lane Kiffin uh, said not that long ago, maybe it was a year or two ago, about what those conversations are like actually with coaches 
before games. And he said, it's really mundane. We're in an awkward, like Saban will go, how's your wife? You know, and it's all like, you know, no one's remembering each other's spouse's names. It's really dumb. It's, it's, they're just trying to fill time and then, you know, walk away. So I think it'd be very similar for them. Not much will change, but they'll play it up for the cameras because, man, there's going to be a lot of cameras focused on them pregame. So another big topic of conversation at SEC spring meetings was a new scheduling model. So before we get into detail and the pros and cons of said change, what are some options being discussed regards to the SEC and future opponents down the road? Yeah, my understanding through our reporting is it's two models that they are discussing, an eight-game model and a nine-game model. That eight-game model would have one permanent opponent for each team and then seven rotating every other year, which will allow you to play everybody in the conference within a four-year period, home and away. Nine-game schedule, three permanent rivals, six rotating. It appears imminent that they're going to have to go with a nine-game schedule because there's a lot of rivalry games that are going to go away every year that they want to be able to keep. Alabama, Tennessee. Auburn, Georgia, for example. And when Texas joins the SEC, trust me, ESPN is going to want Texas versus Texas A&M, and they're not going to get that if they stick with the eight-game schedule because the permanent rivalry for Texas will be OU. So nine-game schedule looks like it's what's going to end up happening. We'll see. But a lot of things, a lot of questions being brought up by these coaches and the athletics directors and now the presidents and chancellors. It's an interesting conversation. The other thing is there's a lot of details that they haven't quite ironed out that I found pretty surprising when I heard about it. And now to look more deeply into it, you know, the schedule change isn't without its potential headaches, right? And consequences. And look, with college schedules, obviously games are planned and agreed upon years and years in advance. How could this change affect maybe not the schedule this year or the next year, but looking down the road schedules four, five, six, seven years from now and beyond? You know, you're looking at a possibility here where if they move to nine games, uh, the SEC will eliminate the requirement that SEC teams must play at least one Power 5 non-conference opponent each season. And if that happens, some programs are going to look at the possibility of eliminating that because they don't want to have a super tough schedule. We're talking about the likes of, of Kentucky or Mizzou. Kentucky only schedules Louisville. That's it. They're one rivalry game uh, as a non-conference opponent for Power 5. So you look at the future. When Texas and OU join the conference, when this new scheduling lineup would go in effect, SEC teams have scheduled a total of 182 games against Power 5 non-conference opponents during a 12 to 13-year period. Also, there are two teams in particular in the SEC that could face an entire regular season of nothing but Power 5 opponents. And guess what? No one really wants to have to play a schedule like that. Those two teams are Florida and Georgia in the SEC East, they could play a full 12-game schedule against nothing but Power 5 opponents a combined eight times in a span of nine seasons. Not so sure they want that. In fact, Scott Strickland, the AD at Florida, when he was alerted by reporters we were talking to him about this, said, oh yeah, that's the year Texas joins us. So that just becomes a conference game. We're not going to have a full 12-game schedule against Power 5 opponents. And we weren't, no, you need to go look at the schedule. We're not counting that. You have other seasons where you might see this. And he's like, oh. So again, that just shows you how there's some really small details that could be huge headaches 
that haven't quite been examined at face value or in a deeper meaning, I should say. And uh, that, that's very interesting to me coming out of these meetings that things like that have not been discussed. And by the way, also, another quick aside, they want to strengthen the tiebreaker policies because whatever poli- you know, scheduling model they go for, they're going to eliminate divisions. And if they do that, they're going to develop a different tiebreaker scenario. They haven't done that yet. And a lot of the ADs and presidents here want them to develop and show them and be able to vote on a tiebreaker policy before they say, hey, we're okay with this scheduling model. So a lot of details surprisingly haven't been worked out yet. Is there a timeline for when they want this to to be enacted? Is it when Texas and Oklahoma joined? Is it before then? You know, what what are some of those details in regards to when this could all come into play? The new scheduling model, whichever it is, will be in, in force in 2025 for the first year OU and Texas join. Could go in earlier if those two teams somehow leave the Big 12 early. By the way, the expectation is that that's not going to happen. They're going to stay in the Big 12 through the end of this contract. Having said that, the feeling is that they could wait before they announce something. In fact, Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, said, remember when Mizzou and Texas A&M joined the SEC? We didn't really get something together till late in the process. So technically, they could wait all the way until probably like December 2024 before they figure everything out. But he said they don't want to do that. They want to get this done sooner than later. And my feeling is, is that they will announce something this year. Brandon, a couple more from me and these two, about two of the most controversial college football talking points, that's NIL and the transfer portal. So first with the portal, what was said or discussed regarding the uh, interconference or the intraconference, I should say, deadline for transfers, which I believe currently is February 1st in order to be immediately eligible, but that's just for the SEC. So, So what's been said about possibly changing that or manipulating it to make it more like the NCAA rule? Yeah, the NCAA rule allows players to enter the portal by May 1st, and they can be immediately eligible under the one-time transfer rule uh, at their new school. The SEC, it's set at February 1st because they don't want a lot of movement going on after spring practices. That's a competitive thing that the coaches didn't really want. Well, the University of Alabama sponsored a proposal to move it to the NCAA date, and a lot of the coaches here don't support it because of exactly why they went with the February 1st date in the first place. They don't want conference rivals picking off their best players in the offseason because that will be easier to do because a lot of these coaches, because they're in the same region, recruited these same players and would be able to get, get them quickly after spring practices. They, as Lane Kiffin said, he says, watching a spring game on the SEC Network or ESPN would almost be like a scouting combine for some of these coaches. They just go, I want that guy. And let's see if we can get them. Now, the other question here is, is that the NCAA and the Transformation Committee, they're looking at installing some new transfer portal windows for the entirety of, of college sports, but specifically college football. And so there's a hesitancy to say, hey, let's change this again, and then have to change it again once that new NCAA policy goes into place. So uh, the feeling here is, is, as we record this, a vote hasn't taken place, but I would be surprised if they end up moving from the February 1st date. I think they're going to wait to see what the NCAA does for the entire sport. And so before we get to our last one regarding NIL, I did have a question I wanted to ask you. And you mentioned Texas and Oklahoma a couple of times. You said that the likelihood is they don't join until 2025 once their contract runs out with the Big 12. But how do they factor into these meetings? You know, Obviously, they're going to be future members of the SEC. I'm sure they'd like to have some sort of say somehow in in what's going to happen in the future years. What 
kind of influence do they have or do they even have any? They have no representatives here at the SEC spring meetings and no voting power as of right now. But back in January or February, they met with the SEC and they communicated the SEC like, here's kind of what we are thinking and what we want on some of the big topics, you know, especially scheduling. And the SEC has been in contact with them and sharing with them what's going on. And uh, they will not have any voting power as far as what this scheduling format or any of these topics will or these discussions will be. But they've gotten their feedback. So they almost have like a, a, a silent vote. Uh, in a lot of ways, because they already know where they stand on these issues. So not a lot of issues there, not a lot of uh, roadblocks, so to speak, uh, I see happening in the future, even though they're not joining the SEC until 2025, as we stand today. So Brandon, last one from me. Look, the back and forth between Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban, obviously centered around NIL. And in regards to name, image, and likeness, there's been a lot of discussion sport-wide, really, on what needs to be done to fix any issues with it. Were potential guardrails at all mentioned or potential changes to it mentioned during these SEC spring meetings and something maybe the conferences can do moving forward? I think the biggest piece of information is that the SEC has looked at their own legal counsel to see what they can do legally, or at least feel safe doing so legally. Remember, the Alston case in the Supreme Court really set a standard last summer to where if you come out against anything that limits what a player can do as far as monetizing their own name, image, and likeness, you're probably going to face litigation and no one wants to go through that. So the SEC is looking at, through their own legislation potentially, with the help of legal counsel, what can we do that would be legal or at least develop some guardrails? The SEC is not ready to even put anything in place, but I think they're putting together maybe some type of package of potential guardrails that one, they could share with the NCAA or maybe with the NCAA Transformation Committee itself, or if the NCAA at some point, as it seems like we're moving toward, we might see more power handed over in autonomy to these conferences to maybe have their own enforcement staffs as far as rules and legislation, but also in policing things and developing different guidelines that might differ from conference to conference. So simply put, it's very complex, but the SEC and other conferences are trying to do something that would fit more their model within their own conference. What does this mean? To me, it's like debate club. They're all talking and saying all a bunch of stuff. And it's like a really heated exchange. And it's a lot of ideas. But in the end, it's just kind of hot air because they can't really do anything. Their hands are tied behind their back. It has no meaningful impact. I still think we're maybe a couple of years away from us actually seeing any steadfast guardrails that kind of corrals everything. But we could see some temporary things put in place, even this calendar year to, to kind of help that. But I don't see anything like really, really substantial on the near horizon. The SEC spring meetings always filled with nuggets, some controversy, and always interesting talking points. You can follow him on Twitter at BMarcello, covering those SEC spring meetings down in Destin, Florida for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, appreciate you joining me. Thanks so much for coming on. You can follow me on Twitter at Lance underscore G11. So for Brandon Marcello, I am Lance Glenn. Thanks for listening to this episode of the College Football Daily. Have a great weekend, everyone.